I'm Rachel Quedno, and you are listening to Upsound. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Upsound, the show where we take one big story from the week's news that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Rachel, Program Director at Strong Towns. I'm filling in for your usual host, Abby Kinney, and my guest today is, as usual, Chuck Marone. Chuck, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. I don't think you and I have ever done this, this show before. So it's it's kind of cool. Not this one. Yeah. Today we're going to be doing something a little different than usual. We're not talking about an article that you might have seen in the news, but we're talking about some Strong Towns news, which is an update on this ongoing lawsuit that we've been involved in with the Minnesota Engineering Licensing Board. And so just to recap a little bit, this has been going on for a couple of years now. About two years ago, Chuck was notified by the Engineering Licensing Board for the state of Minnesota that this complaint had been filed against him uh, for practicing engineering without a license, which is not the first time that critics of Strong Towns have tried to use this board's formal process to discredit our movement. Um, We're going to be publishing some more stuff on the website this week to share more about that, but this time they just took another step. If you'd like to review more about this case, um, we have a webpage set up, strongtowns.org slash support reform. I'll link to that. But the basic gist is that for a period of several months when Chuck's license was inadvertently lapsed, he thought he renewed, and he used the term professional engineer as always, you know, in his bio and on his LinkedIn page and a few other places. Um, it's basically a paperwork mix up. He didn't do any engineering work during that time, of course, because he was working for Strong Towns. And for many months, Chuck has been working to resolve this issue amicably, respectfully, uh, but the board has not been receptive to those things. And since our last update, which was several months ago, kind of the open question was what their final next decision was going to be about this and whether they might actually choose to be reasonable. Instead, their ruling really illustrates for us that this whole process has been an attack on free speech and an attack on the advocacy of this Strong Tots movement. They weren't okay with just, you know, a fine and a late fee, which would have been, you know, standard practice in which Chuck offered to pay. Um, instead, their final ruling that they recently issued was a formal censure of Chuck. Of course, we are appealing this decision because it's absurd. But on a bigger scale, this is really the story of this group of high-powered engineers who are really scared of change, and they feel threatened by the arguments that Strong Towns has made countless times, that engineers are not the best people to design streets, that engineers should be held responsible for the deaths and injuries that result from the way that they build their streets, that engineers' values don't align with the values of the general public. We can tell that engineering leadership feels threatened by this, and so They've lashed out with this mechanism that they found, which is, you know, this petty procedural thing, basically the equivalent to a parking ticket. And it's clear that these examples of censuring Chuck, like censuring Chuck, it's it's not about a formal, it's not about a paperwork mix up. Like this is something a lot bigger. We know that they are really afraid of the advocacy that this movement is doing. And so... They are uh, trying to use this procedural process to uh, 
try to get strong towns, try to get Chuck, and uh, we are not going to stand for it. So that's a recap from my perspective. Chuck, I know that you've been patiently trying to deal with this for years and been pretty reasonable throughout the process. It's been a really frustrating distraction. It's a ridiculous attack on this movement. Um, how are you doing? What are your thoughts about this latest update? Obviously, this is, is a very sad thing. This did not need to get to this point. And I do feel comfortable that we did everything we could reasonably to keep it from this point to the point where I, I agreed and our board didn't like it. I mean, you and my bosses said, no, don't do this. <laughs> I said, well, look, uh, I think we need to try to negotiate this and I think we need to try to, to settle this. And you know, there were some concerns about us giving up too much. Um, you know, even uh, the idea of acknowledging the legitimacy of this whole entire process in some ways is a threat to other engineers who would speak up. At Strong Towns, we're doing this, we're building this movement. We're working on this project together. And part of it is not to tear down the engineering profession, but to redirect, re redirect engineers. Engineers have a huge role to play in building strong towns. They have a huge role to play in improving safety for people. They have a huge role to play in making our streets more productive. Uh, they have a huge role to play in, in how our public budgets are properly allocated. And so our movement has never been about tearing down the engineering profession. It's always been about modernizing it, making it the best version of itself. And by working within the profession to do that, uh, by keeping my engineering license, despite the fact that I wasn't practicing, um, I knew I opened myself up to attack from within. But I always figured that if I didn't practice, there was not much they could do to me. The thing that is most frustrating is the signal that this is sent to uh, other engineers. The idea that if you stand up and you speak out, uh, you will be made a target. Uh, you will be made a target. And the people who disagree with you uh, will seek any avenue and recourse they can uh, to discredit you. And that the licensing board in the state of Minnesota, and, and this follows on other states where we've seen similar things happen, uh, will abuse their authority to, to carry out that attack. There was a period of time when I was open to the idea that uh, this was just a small group on a violation committee that maybe were some petty bureaucrats who, you know, were going to be sticklers on the rule and what have you. But as we've gone through this multiple rounds of litigation prior to their final ruling, as I sat in a room and met with them and experienced not only the way they treated me and the way they treated our, our attorney, um, but the very process itself, which is very closed, very inward facing, that we had to leave the room when they deliberated, uh, you know, we're not able to make parts of my record public because of the, the very closed and internal process that, that they have. Um, and then when we got their ruling, all of this together uh, kind of removed any optimism I had that this was just a, a mix-up, that this was just some petty bureaucrats, that this was just uh, some people who, you know, when given the, the the light of day and a little bit of scrutiny, would realize that they uh, were not doing their jobs. And it goes to not just the reprimand and the fine, but as you mentioned, this idea of censure. 
This might not seem like much to people. Uh, you know, you were censured, oh, big deal. Within the profession, this is a, a really big deal. And it's a really big deal for our movement as well. But let me focus on the profession first. The idea of censure is essentially this board of your colleagues getting together, other licensed professionals, looking at the conduct that you have done, the things that you as a licensed professional have done, the, the way you've conducted yourself, the decisions you've made, and how it reflects on them and their profession. And then deciding after reviewing this record that they are so disgusted with you that they are so appalled by what you have done and the actions you have taken that they need to formally issue a censure. We are going to distance ourselves from you and your actions and the things you have done. What are the things that I've done? My license lapsed. I didn't renew it. I thought I had renewed it. I didn't. My license lapsed. My bio said I was a professional engineer. The title slide on my presentation says Charles Marone PE. Literally, that is all I did. I didn't design anything. I didn't build anything. I didn't sign any plans. Nobody died and nobody was injured. I didn't defraud anybody. I didn't, I didn't do anything. I just kept my bio the way it was. When I found out that my license is expired, I renewed. What, what had I done? I, I did nothing. But they felt such a high level of disgust and a high level of being appalled by me that they needed to issue a censure. I know Andrew, our board member this week, uh, wrote an article where he went through and, and pointed out three different cases where the board has issued a ruling, uh, reprimands and fines and what have you. And in each case, they did not issue a censure. Um, these are you know very recent rulings, same board, same people, roughly. These were things like defrauding people, actually stealing money, embezzling money from children. Uh, there was one uh, engineer who had practiced for more than a decade, actually signed plans, overseen others, done work. Uh, this person was found to not have a current license. Uh, they were fined, sure, but they were not censured. There's no feeling of disgust or being appalled by their behavior. There was one individual who uh, had gone to work for a city left a consulting firm, gone to work for city, and then directed millions of dollars of work uh, to his old firm in which he was still a shareholder in uh, without disclosing that at all. The board fined this person, the board reprimanded this person, but there was no censure. There was no statement of disgust. It's only me. It's only Strong Towns. It's only our work that has risen to that level. And uh, to me, it, it cleared away any notion that this was somehow an august board reluctantly having to sanction one of its own for calling themselves a, a professional engineer during a, a, a temporary lapse in licensure. And instead, what it clearly is, which is a, an extension of an attack that multiple engineers have now made through the violations process on me, on Strong Towns, and on our advocacy. And let, let me just say one last thing about the idea of censure. Um, these other individuals who have done truly egregious, heinous things, not only have kept their license, but have, have not been censured by the board. Um, why would it be important to censure me? Why would it be important to censure strong towns? Because it is an attack on our ideas. I mean, the, the, the notion here is that uh, 
this morning, before you and I were chatting, I did an interview with a public TV station in Detroit. They wanted me to talk about different intersections and why they were dangerous. And we wound up talking about the theory of uh, engineering and how we build things and, and, and how we have allocated and misallocated budgets to moving vehicles quickly instead of building places. Um, it's really hard as a profession to engage on those issues. Uh, when you disagree with the things that we're saying, it's really hard to stand up and say, no, we should keep the current design standards. We should keep the current approach. We should keep doing what we're doing. And it's hard because we don't have the money and it's killing lots and lots of people. But it's easy to attack us if you say, yeah, you can listen to Strong Towns, but you know that guy has been censured by the state of Minnesota. He's disreputable. You can't really listen to him. I mean, the state uh, themselves went through a process and censured him. This is an attack on us, an attack on reform. And it is a statement to any other engineer who might stand up and say, you know, I agree with Strong Towns. I agree with your approach. I think things need to change. It is a clear signal to them to keep your mouth shut. Because if you don't stay in line, if you don't keep your mouth shut, uh, the profession is going to look for any opportunity to attack you, no matter how petty, drag you through the mud and try to discredit you. And, you know, if you're making a living, if, if you're not like us where we're making a living doing advocacy, I, I, don't, I don't need my license. But if you are an engineer out there practicing who needs their license, who needs to be licensed uh, and needs to have, you know, a, a clean record in order to get work, to feed their family, to, to do the things that they need to do, uh, the threat of sanction, the threat of censure is, uh, is a really daunting one. And so I'm proud of our board for pushing me uncomfortably to, to, to continue to push on with this. I'm proud of our board for immediately saying, yeah, this is uh, in a fine thing, a slap on the wrist, but it's the larger principle that's at stake here. And so we will appeal this and, and, and continue to appeal it until we get justice in this case. Uh, and I'm proud of our members for standing up and supporting us in this effort. As you were just saying a minute ago, like, we don't want to remove the, the engineering profession. Like, we need engineers to redirect and do the good work to build better streets, safer streets, more affordable streets. Like, that is, is a huge part of what we're advocating for. I've been thinking about this case um, as somebody who's not an engineer and doesn't work in a profession that has, like, a formal um, licensing and association and all that. And I know that like for you, it's quite personal and it's a particular experience being someone that is within that type of profession to have colleagues who, you know, went through this training like you did, who ostensibly, I don't know if you have to like sign an oath, but like you're committed to these principles of like building things that better people's lives um, to have those people call you out is is really frustrating and disappointing. And I know that this whole case started because uh, an individual engineer wrote to the board and said, hey, uh, I don't like this guy. Look what he's talking about. Um, so that's where it all started. Well, someone, um, someone read something I wrote, didn't like it, wrote to the board and said that I was a fraud. And I was a fraud because he didn't like what I said. And my bio said I was a licensed engineer during this period where my license lapsed. 
Yeah, after the board had already uh, accepted your renewal. Reissued my license because I was fully qualified. I mean, I, I have all the qualifications to be a licensed engineer. But yeah, uh, it, it is um, – there's a personal side of this that is very painful. Um, I have to say that you know, part of my uh, discussions with our board about wanting to settle this was really wanting to be rid of uh, – the mental burden of having to deal with this. I mean, I, I realize that there are principles at stake and I, I'm not going to take those lightly, but this has also been a huge distraction. Uh, it's one of those things that does keep me up at night. It, it bothers me, quite frankly. I, I feel kind of sick to my stomach that I've been censured by the, the state licensing board. That's something I've had to explain to my mom. And that might sound kind of trite and silly, but, you know, mom, here's you know, I come from kind of a part of the world and a, maybe a, a culture where you just don't run afoul of state licensing institutions like that. This is not something that a decent human being does. Um, and so there's been this personal aspect of this that has been kind of difficult. On the other hand, we had a couple dozen engineers write letters to the licensing board on my behalf. Uh, we have multiple people who are going to be published on our site this week talking about this as engineers giving their firsthand testimony. I, I have had more people than I can keep track of contact me saying, I am licensed. I am within the profession. I support you. What's being done is wrong. Some of these people don't feel like they can stand up and speak. Some of these people are worried about themselves being sanctioned if they identify with us. Um, my hope is that we can go through this process successfully and create some room for them to be able to step forward with confidence. I want to say one kind of last thought that I've had stirring around in my mind. I remember the very early days of Strong Towns. And I, I've said this, I've, I've not been shy about this. The articles are still there if you want to go look at them. Um, the very early days of Strong Towns, I was an angry dude. Um, you know, you, you go back and read like the early things I wrote and I was trying to figure a lot of this stuff out too. I had been trying to work as a consultant doing engineering and planning in cities and had been warning for years about the, the fiscal unsustainability of the system. And then the housing crisis hit, the, the subprime bubble burst, and I found myself losing a lot of work. I found myself basically... Uh, a lot of the cities that I warned, things are going to go bad. When things went bad, the first thing they did was got rid of me. And you know, the the people that I had had were had to lay off and uh, you know say goodbye to, and the the trauma that put their families through and everything else. If you go back to those early days of the blog of Strong Towns, there was a lot of animosity that came out in my writing. I was angry. I was angry at the engineering profession for not taking the fiscal into account, for being very self-serving. I coined the phrase, the infrastructure cult, to talk about the American Society of Civil Engineers and wrote a bunch of articles about how their advocacy uh, was moving this country in the wrong direction, how this obsession with building more and more infrastructure was actually hurting our cities, hurting people. I coined the word strodes in these early years and talked about how this hybrid of trying to move vehicles quickly and create a place was killing people and how the engineering profession was culpable in that and needed to change their approach. The feedback that I got in those early years from professional engineers was, whoa, 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 Chuck, you're kind of speaking outside of the church, right? Like you're out there 
saying things in public that sure we we talk about in private, but you need to talk about that in private. That there's engineering societies you can be part of. There are groups you can join. Uh, there are chat rooms where we're debating these issues. Come to a conference of the American Society of Civil Engineers. Have a private discussion with people. Uh, go join this chat room in the Institute of Transportation Engineers and be part of it. Join these societies and, and actually work within the profession to reform it. I'm not going to say that I rejected that. I, I actually felt that that was critique and criticism that had some validity. But I also pushed back and said, I don't think internally this profession can reform itself without some outside pushing. And the outside pushing can't be street advocates out, you know, yelling about pedestrians or, or people who are advocates for the homeless or advocates for, um, you know, go, go down your list of kind of progressive advocacy types of things, which are very valid, but engineers don't listen to them. I said, to do this, it has to be someone with credibility, someone with PE behind their names, who's standing with many of these groups saying their concerns are valid. You can't ignore them. And I think that, you know, that decision has directly landed us here. And there are engineers pushing for reform. There are people who want to change the system, but they still are a minority within the profession. And they still default to the closed room, the closed chat board, the private discussion, the whispers among themselves, as opposed to what really needs to happen, which is a large public dialogue on the future of transportation in this country. It is heartening to see how many people within the Strong Towns movement um, who are professional engineers have stepped up and said, this is unacceptable. We as engineers uh, don't agree with this ruling and we want to change the profession too. Just last week, this is a coincidence, but I had um, one of our longtime founding members, Lindsay Meek, uh, on the Bottom Up Revolution podcast, and she was talking about how watching the uh, conversation with an engineer video, which is ancient at this point, was like seeing the light for her and changed the direction of her own engineering work and profession. And then this week on the Bottom Up Revolution podcast, again, didn't plan this, but um, my guess is Spencer Gardner, who's also a longtime member of Strong Towns, um, he's not an engineer, but he's a planner. And he's now leading planning for the city of Spokane, where they're doing a number of really, really important Strong Towns reforms. So we're seeing these people in leadership positions who are advocating for Strong Towns, who have been changed by being part of this movement, who are leading this movement. And so I feel hopeful about all of those amazing folks in their professions who are trying to be advocates and reformers, but we need to keep fighting so that we can have a lot more of them. Yeah, I agree. Um, if people go to that page, strongtowns.org slash support reform, uh, they will get all the information that's been out. That page, if you start at the bottom, it's the earliest stuff. So the bottom is the correspondence with the violations committee and the licensing board. Then above that, you have the federal lawsuit that was filed uh, that was ultimately dismissed because of the Younger Doctrine. Um, the Younger Doctrine says uh, the federal courts won't hear it until you've exhausted your state appeals. That's the process we're in now. Above that, you're going to see the administrative uh, process that the state filed against me in district court uh, and the resolution of that, which is essentially the 
the judge saying, we won't, I can't rule on any constitutional issues. I can only rule on whether uh, the board has the authority to do this, and they do, uh, sans any constitutional challenges. So good luck. Above that, you'll see the final ruling from the uh, Minnesota Board of Licensure, uh, all the correspondence that went in that. I've got a really bad audio recording uh, of the hearing. They will not give us the audio recording uh, that is, was done formally. They also closed most of it. So I only have the part where we presented and their attorney presented, but all their deliberations are are private and kept secret and can never be released for some bizarre reason that I don't understand. Um, and then above that, you'll see our appeal in the Minnesota Court of Appeals. Our board has said, we will appeal the Minnesota Court of Appeals if it, this is going to be the first instance where the constitutional issues at stake, the ability to uh, speak freely, the right to free speech, and, and whether or not the engineering board can even regulate me when I wasn't licensed. When my license lapsed, I mean, our core argument has been, I'm not subject to your regulation. I didn't do any engineering work. You're only empowered to regulate people who are doing engineering work. You can't regulate me. Those have not even been considered as arguments, and they'll be considered for the first time at the Court of Appeals. If for some reason we don't have a just ruling in the Court of Appeals, our board has said we will go to the state Supreme Court, and then we'll ultimately go to the, the federal courts. And, uh, you know, our legal team is very confident that particularly when we get to the federal courts where there's a uh, kind of default towards First Amendment protections for free speech, a case of a state agency censuring, reprimanding, fining uh, a private U.S. citizen for saying that uh, he is something that he's fully qualified to be. Uh, yet not doing any engineering work, anything that re that was regulated by the state is a case that, uh, you know, the, the federal courts will look at very favorably. So it might be a long path here. Uh, I'm hoping that this does not become something that my career uh, over the next few years is defined by, but we're just going to keep moving forward and um, doing the best we can to get this resolved positively. So heavy topic today. Um, let's switch gears to talk about the down zone, the part of the show where we share anything that we've been reading or listening to, watching. Um, have you been doing anything for fun lately, Chuck? What what is? I I don't understand the question. Okay, for educational edification. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Then. I'm uh so so as as you know, and I think I've alluded to it here before, but Daniel and I are working on the next book in the Strong Town series. Uh, this one will be about housing. And I'm actually to the point where I'm I'm starting to write, like I've assembled things. And, and my part of this, I'm, I'm starting to, to put uh, pen to paper, so to speak. And the, the last thing I did is I went back and I uh, have been listening to The Big Short again. Not the movie, the book. The movie's fantastic, but the book is just such a, a good read. And, you know, part of the story of housing today in America is yes, a story of zoning and a story of regulation and a story of building and construction, but it's also a story of how we financialized uh, the housing market and how housing uh, is in a sense as a market instrument, as a uh, financial device um, allowed to go in only one direction and that direction being up. Uh, if you trade in mortgage-backed securities and other related products, 
uh, that makes a lot of sense and you have a lot of confidence in that. If you're trying to buy a house as you were uh, you know, a year ago, if you're trying to move homes or if you find yourself uh, struggling to get housing, uh, the idea that financialization of the housing market and prices continually going up is a good thing is something that is not going to resonate with you. So it was just good to get back into the big short mentality and kind of the the, the core insight of the book, which is, um, you know, when you're gambling with people's homes, uh, you're doing something really, really destructive. Okay. Revisiting the big short. Yeah. I've only seen the movie. I have not read the book. Well, Michael Lewis is such a compelling writer. I mean, his writing style is so interesting and so compelling. So yeah, I would, um, the movie was fun. Uh, the book is way better. The book is just so good. Well, I have been watching a show that uh, you probably, this probably didn't travel around your circles, Chuck, but in my circles, I heard about this show constantly. So I had to start watching it. It's called The Bear on Hulu. And it's about this guy who's like a Michelin star chef, um, gets brought back to his hometown of Chicago to run the restaurant that his, his brother used to run. His brother like passes away and he has to come back and like run the family restaurant. It's like a little bit dark because it's dealing with, you know, death and family stuff, but also like very funny. And it's fun to watch like the show in Chicago. I've spent a lot of time in Chicago. That's where my family's from. Um, great like Chicago accents and watching it with my husband who has worked at, like every job in the restaurant industry over his life. Um, he's just always saying like, oh yeah, this is exactly how it is. Like, this is exactly like the stress of the kitchen. So it's a little bit, uh, like raises your blood pressure to watch it, but it's, it's very fun. So, and compelling would recommend that the bear on Hulu. I dropped my Hulu subscription, uh, when they got rid of the uh, Minnesota sports channels and, um, I was compelled to get it back last week because they have the new Predator movie is out on Hulu. And now that maybe didn't get around your circles because it's not like a bake. I mean, I saw it on the Hulu homepage. Yeah. Okay. I'm telling you, it's a fantastic show. And it was, okay, well, if you're not into Predator, okay, a little creepy, right? Like I get it. Predator is like a, it's a fascinating concept. Um, I, I always thought it was very interesting because I grew up and I live in a culture of hunting. I've never shot anything in my life that wasn't like a target. I'm just, I was like, I was sitting out on a deer stand because that's culturally what you did. And I'm thinking, if a deer comes by here, I'm not going to shoot it. Like, what am I doing out here? It's just not my thing. But I have, you know, my family all deer hunts and they all, you know, do other hunting. Um, but the predator always fascinated me because it's this idea of this alien coming to earth on a hunting expedition, right? Which... You can see like from our standpoint, the morality of it being a little questionable because he goes around hunting humans because humans are the most, you you know, fascinating thing to hunt on earth. You know, it's like someone going hunting a lion or something that can actually fight back a little bit. You know, you, you wow, you know, the thrill of the hunt. But obviously, you know, it's a little bit challenging if you are the human being hunted. Uh, the thing that was unique about this movie and it, it actually made like public radio and a bunch of other places was just how they uh, they used a – it wasn't exclusively, but it was predominantly a Native American cast to not just play like the Native American roles, but the, 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 the whole thing was 
was set in the 1700s. So it's a prequel to the, the rest of the series. But it involved native tribe dynamics and then also, you know, the, the, the star characters and everybody and some of the protagonists um, were all Native American. And in, in that sense, it captured something, I think, um, you know, I'm not going to say it was deep and beautiful because it was a predator action movie, but um, it was very interesting and it was kind of fun. And I, I appreciated that aspect of it. Uh, I think they tried to do a... Um, a legit job of of capturing the essence of of you know what that what what it would have been like in the 1700s. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So maybe our next staff retreat, we'll watch the great. What was the great Bake Off one you wanted me to watch at one time? Great British Baking Show. Yeah, I'm also I watched that. I watched show. one episode of that, and I'm like, um, okay. Uh, Which you like baking, so that surprises me. I know a lot of people who don't even have never baked a thing, and they love that show. <laughs> I watched but. one um, where it was like a Christmas cookie thing, where they were like had this competition where you get like two hours and you've got to bake a Christmas thing, and here's like the five ingredients you have. And um, you're like, that's my life every December. Every December, and but I'm like, I I don't. To me, the whole baking experience is not about stress. It's like relax. It's like going to a spa, right? It's like relaxing. I'm baking this stuff. I got a good book on. I'm chillaxing. There's a fire going. Like it's really nice. And all of a sudden, it's like go, go, go. And I'm like, ah, it's taking the thing I enjoy doing. It would be like if you had like the great American like spa day. But instead of going and getting, this would be my wife, like going and getting a massage and relaxing and getting a pedicure, there were just people like yelling at you about, you know, this. I'm like, this is a horrible show. How many show. massages can you fit into one day? Exactly. I'm like, this is a horrible show. <laughs> you didn't do it right. <laughs> uh, all right. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening and uh, letting me sub in here. Um, what is the formal sign off for Upsound? I'm forgetting. Oh, Abby does the, uh, she does, she's legit. She does a real thing. She says, hey, everybody, keep doing what you can to build a strong town.